Thank you, Kyle. We are returning, friends, to our series on the Sermon on the Mount. It's uh, been a few weeks since we've been there, but we've been in the Sermon on the Mount on and off for a number of months. For those of you who maybe are uh, new here and haven't been with us through our journey so far, the series title is Through the Looking Glass, and it's taken from, uh, obviously, the Lewis Carroll story of Alice, who goes through a mirror, goes through a looking glass, and finds herself in a whole new world. It's like an alternative reality, where things don't happen the same way that they happen in her own world. And we're using that metaphor to describe the life that happens, that is given to a Christian when they become a follower of Jesus Christ. When you become a Christian, when you become a believer in Jesus, you enter what's called the kingdom of God. Jesus came proclaiming this kingdom of God, and he said that when you enter into that kingdom by faith, you now live according to a new set of rules, a new ethic, a a new way of understanding reality, and a new way of understanding how to live in that reality. You have different priorities. Your priorities are no longer set by the world you came from and the ruler of that world. Your priorities are set by the ruler that you now submit to, the ruler of the kingdom of God, which is Jesus Christ, His Son. And so that's what this series has been about. Us looking at what does it mean to live in that alternative reality or alternative kingdom. And we're now starting uh, Matthew chapter 7. We're looking at what Jesus has to say about life in this kingdom in Matthew chapter 7. And we're here in verses 1 to 6, which are really maybe some of the most well-known verses of the New Testament these days. Um, Probably there was a time when John 3.16 was the most... uh, well-known passage from the New Testament, you know, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. A lot of people knew that over the years, but now I think more and more people know these words because they're very, very popular in our culture. They're abused, (laughs) they're misunderstood, but they're used all the time. What does Jesus say? Do not judge or you too will be judged. How many of you heard that somewhere along the line from somebody in some conversation? Please, raise your hand. Don't judge. That's very, very popular in our culture today. Don't judge lest you be judged. What in the world does that mean? Like I said, it's probably one of the most abused and misunderstood passages in the whole Bible. What we're going to do is look at it together this morning for a few minutes, and we're going to understand what it doesn't mean. Then we're going to look at what it does mean, and then we're going to see how in the world we can follow what it means, or fulfill what it means, or obey what it means, okay? What it doesn't mean, what it does mean, how we can follow what it means. First of all, and this won't take long at all, what does it not mean for Jesus to say, do not judge, or you too will be judged, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured against, or measured to you. The first thing it does not mean is that what we should do is suspend the rule of law. It does not mean that. 
It does not mean that we should live in a nation that doesn't have laws or that we should conduct ourselves in a church that doesn't have rules and doesn't have laws. Matthew 18 describes what's called the pattern of discipline in the church. How are we supposed to deal with differences with, between one another? First uh, Corinthians 5 describes uh, uh, an actual discipline, discipline case in the church where Paul weighs in on what the Corinthian church should do with a wayward parishioner. So we have examples of the rule of law happening within the church, and then we have Romans 13, where the Apostle Paul says that we are supposed to submit to our governing authorities, and our governing authorities, they actually have the sword, meaning discipline of a different sort, I suppose. They have laws by which they govern their nation. So that does not, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. What else does it not mean? Well, it also doesn't mean that we're supposed to turn off our brains. And why do I say that? Well, oftentimes people will use this phrase, hey, don't judge. Don't you judge. Don't be judgy. Don't judge me. How can you judge me? How dare you judge me? They use this kind of language, frankly, uh, simply to shut down conversation and, and confrontation. As if to say that we're not supposed to evaluate, we're not supposed to critique, we're not supposed to assess the beliefs or the behaviors of other people. We're, we're supposed to just kind of do our own thing, live and let live, you do you, I'll do me, and we're never supposed to actually uh, evaluate the beliefs or behaviors of people. Uh, this, all right? If you tell me it's wrong to tell other people it's wrong, so if you tell me it's wrong to judge the beliefs and behaviors of other people, aren't you evaluating my beliefs and or behaviors? Aren't you judging me by telling me not to be judgy? You're making a judgment about my judgmentalism? I could go on. I think you get my point though, right? This is... This is inconsistent, this is illogical, this is irrational, and Jesus is not telling us to do that. We cannot escape evaluation. Everybody's looking to see if I'm going to step on those glasses, aren't you? Yeah. I, I have phenomenal peripheral vision, people, so I know where they are, but I am going to pick them up. And I guarantee this will happen eventually. I think my kids are laying bets. How many weeks are we going to go until dad steps on those things? Anyway, we simply cannot escape making evaluations, making judgments, assessing the behaviors of believers. Jesus does it himself. Look at verse 6. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. He's calling somebody a dog. He's calling somebody a pig. He means to make some kind of evaluation when he says that. We'll get to what he's doing uh, in a few minutes. But these are all things that Jesus is not saying when he says, do not judge. That's not what he's after. Okay, what does it mean when Jesus says, do not judge or you too will be judged for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged? What does he mean by that? Well, the best way to figure it out is to understand how this word is used throughout the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. And when you go back to the Old Testament, here's what you discover. God promises 
that he will one day come back at the end of history. Remember, history is linear. It's not cyclical, happening over and over. It's got a beginning. It's got a middle. It's got an end. We're in the middle now, and God promises that one day at the end of history, he is going to return, and he is going to judge. What does that mean? He's going to evaluate. He's going to assess. He's going to separate good from evil, and he promises that he is going to condemn and destroy evil. He will punish evildoers. That is his promise. And it's that kind of judgment that Jesus tells you and me we are not to participate in. Jesus, of course, wants us to evaluate the beliefs and behaviors of ourselves as well as others. He wants us to to call out sin. When there is something that is wrong, it is actually just a prerogative, but it is a speak out against it. Injustice, when we see it, we must not be silent, but we must speak up on behalf of Christ for the sake of those who are experiencing injustice. So Jesus wants us to do that. However, Jesus never, ever, 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 ever wants us to condemn others, to judge others in the sense that we are studying this passage and then watching TV. How often... And how flippantly characters on television shows say, go to hell. Think about that. Like it's chilling to think that we would so flippantly use language of such judgment towards other people where we would say, go to hell. That's the pre- precisely the very thing that Jesus is saying we must not ever do. Because then you are doing what? You're playing God. You're saying that you know what's going on deep within the recesses of another human heart. You barely know what's going on in the deep recesses of your own heart. How can we know what's going on in the deep recesses of someone else's heart? God alone is the final judge. This is what Jesus is getting at when he says to us, we should not judge. Okay. What do we do about that? What that, what does it look like? to be that kind of judginess? And how do you avoid being that kind of judginess? How do you know the difference? Well, look at verse 2. Verse 2 says this. In the same way you judge others, you will be judged. With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. How do you want to be measured How do you want to be judged? How do you want to be evaluated? You want to be measured and evaluated on the very same standard that other people are judged and measured, right? Like, if you're in a 100-meter dash, and you're expected, when the, the gun goes off, to run 100 meters, you want everybody else in that race to have to run 100 meters too. You don't want anybody getting to start at the 10-meter yard line yard line? What's up with that? The 10 meter line or, or start, you know, two seconds later or something. You want everybody to be on the same level, to be on the same page, right? You want them all to run the same 100 meters. In other words, you are being called by Jesus to treat other people the same way you want to be treated. Now this, friends, this is timely stuff for right now in our culture. Because today, 
there is a tendency, a, there is a impulse uh, in our culture right now to judge others, to size people up according to their group identity. So to make judgments about other people based upon their sex, based upon their race, based upon their class or their sexual orientation or their political affiliations, we look at people and we say, well, they're in that group, therefore that means they are this kind of person. We base our judgments on that. And you don't want to be judged based upon these kinds of identifiers, your, your color. You don't want people to make moral decisions based upon your race or your color or your sexual orientation or your hair or your dress or who your parents were even. Hasn't that ever happened to you? My poor sister. I won't, go to, I won't get into it, but I, I, I failed Bible in grades in high school. I won't explain why. A lot of it had to do with a bad teacher. That's beside the point. A lot of it had to do with a bad student. My poor sister, she comes along and she gets into that same Bible class and that teacher was gunning for my little perfect, never got a detention, got straight A's. You know, she was the good kid. All of a sudden, she's having all these problems. Why? Because this teacher was like, you're a Vandenbrink. You're Paul Vandenbrink's little sister. I, got, I know you. I've got you pegged. And she hated that. And thankfully, my parents called the teacher out on that, and things changed pretty, pretty, pretty quickly for her. Not for me, but for her. <laughs> um, if you're accused, you want a fair hearing, right? You don't want people to rush to judgment about you, and, and you know, you said something stupid on Twitter, and the next thing you know, everybody's piling on and saying, you're this, and you're that, and you're this, and you're that. You want people to give you the benefit of the doubt. If that's the measure you want, ask yourself, are you using that measure with others? Check your social media feed. Francis Schaeffer was a just a brilliant cultural kind of apologist, Christian teacher, and he said, you know, Imagine if on the last day you stand before God and God says, look, I know you think it's kind of unfair for me to judge you by my standard. I disagree, but let's for the sake of our argument say it is. It just so happens, however, that you've had an invisible tape recorder hung around your neck all your life, and all it's ever played is when you said someone else should do something. Or you said, someone else should stop doing something that they're doing. And I'm not going to judge you on my standard. I'm just going to judge you on your own standard. And he presses play, click. How do you think you'd do? How do you think you'd do? We don't want to be judged by uh, these kinds of identifiers, but we certainly do judge other people this way all the time. Again, Jesus says, with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Let's keep going. The first thing, then, is treat others the way you want to be treated. Measure others the way you want to be measured. Second of all, Look at verses 3 through 5. This is the famous illustration Jesus uses with the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and the, the plank in your own eye. And he says, how, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? 
Jesus is using a funny illustration here, right? You got this picture of a guy with a log in his eye, and every time he turns around to help somebody else, wham, he smacks him in the head with his big, big log or whatever it is that's sitting in his eye. He can't get close enough to help anybody with the tiny speck in their eye. And it's meant to be kind of humorous, but it actually has a very, very serious uh, consequence to it. Jesus is making a metaphor here, and he's saying, look, you can have a sin in your soul, a, a, bef- a, a befitting fault, or a besetting, I should say, not befitting, a besetting salt fault in yourself, a thing that, that lodges in your own soul that actually damages your ability to see others properly. Think about if you got a splinter or a speck or something in your eye. What happens? Your eye starts to water, everything gets blurry, you're constantly blinking, everything in front of you gets distorted and you can't see it properly. And Jesus is saying you can have things in your life, sins lodged into your heart that makes it impossible for you to see things properly. I'll give you two quick examples. Let's say you're a guy who was hurt by a girl in a relationship. And as a result of that, you now can't trust women. And you won't go on another date because you don't want to get hurt again. Or even more significant, for today's day and age, this is happening all the time. You read article after article after article about it. In uh, the world today, more and more men are being addicted to pornography because of how easily accessible it is. And so they have a completely distorted view of what a real woman is, and they can't relate properly to real women. Jesus is saying, this happens to us. You have, you've got stuff, okay? You've got stuff in your life, sins, flaws, anxieties, bitterness, that, that when it lodges in your soul, it distorts your vision of your friends. And, you know, it's, it's so interesting. Oh, boy, here we go again. I've got to figure out how to... Anyway. Um, who do you know best? Who do you know better than anybody else in your life? It's you, right? You know you better. You may not even know yourself very well. You know your best friends, your closest siblings, your parents, your kids, your husband or your wife. You know yourself better. You know your thoughts. You know your desires. You know your, your pettiness and, and your, your, your cruelties and sometimes your brutishness. And yet, and yet, even though we know ourselves better than we know anybody else in the world, and we know how significant our sins are in our lives, we know that, yet, so often we are more bothered by the sins of others than we are of our own. I can promise you this right now. If you are a parent, I know I use parenting stuff a lot. i got to get beyond that, but... This is where I'm getting convicted all the time, okay? Because this is my world right now. You're all worried about your kid and the choices that they're making and their decisions and stuff, and you're all shaking your head and you're talking to people and you're, you're worried about them. Ask yourself this question. Are you more tired of your kids' sins than you are of your own? Or of your spouse's? sins or of your boyfriend's sins or your girlfriend's sins or your parents' sins or your family's sins or your friend's sins, whatever. I am haunted by this question. 
It makes me think of the story of, of Nathan coming to David. You remember David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he come, and Nathan the prophet comes, and he tells him this story of this, this awful king who wanted to have a party, and he stole another guy's one little lamb you. Is that you, lamb? Lamb you? Mike? Mark? Mark? Lamb. Okay. Little baby lamb, whatever that is. A lamb. And he steals it. And he slaughters it, and he has a party for his friends, even though he had this whole flock of all these sheep. And David is like, I'd kill that guy. And David is like, through the heart, he is struck by God's conviction of his sin. What should be such a huge thing to us, think about it, if you had a plank in your eye, wouldn't that be obvious? You can't see nothing which should be so obvious to us. It's this huge thing. We look right past it to the sins of others. Jesus says, get rid of your plank. Get rid of that first. Unless, <clears throat> here's the lesson. <clears throat> Can you mute me, mute me for a second? Here's, here's the lesson. Unless your sin looms larger in your life than the sin of others, you actually won't be able to help them with their sin. You won't have the compassion, the gentleness, the, the sweetness that is required. Think about this. How do, you, how do you get a splinter out? You don't just grab a pair of tweezers and start digging in there, right? You've got to be so, so careful so, so gentle. And ever, ever play that game Operation? It made me think of that game Operation where you have to get the, the bones out of that body and you make sure you don't touch the sides with that tweezer, otherwise, bang, you get this buzz. You have to be absolutely so, so careful. Jesus is saying you need to be tactful, you need to be gracious, you need to be gentle. I don't, get, uh, I don't get a lot of criticism, thankfully. I'm a, I'm a weak man, thin-skinned probably, need to teach, preach the gospel to myself. But I will say this, sometimes it's rather striking. You know, you get an email and you're like, whoa, wow, whew, really? Haven't that ever happened to you? You posted something on social media and like I said, people piled on and you're like, whoa, that's not what I meant at all. Or, wow, that's kind of presumptuous of you. We need to be careful with one another and be gentle with one another. Well, how do we get this gentleness? How, how do we remove the speck? Or remember, well, actually, the same is true today. Back then, they didn't even have mirrors, okay? Unless you were really wealthy, you had a lousy mirror. Nobody else had mirrors. You couldn't just look in the mirror and try to pull that thing out yourself, what did you need? You needed someone else. You needed other people to come in and help you remove that speck out of your eye. And so Jesus is implying here that we all need evaluation, that we all need to be addressed by people in our lives who see the things in us that are displeasing to God and who gently and graciously point them out to us and we receive that because once you have received that and demonstrated that you can receive that, it shows that you know that you will, what is needed for you to be able to go to someone else and share with them that which they need to address. Do you understand? Okay, last thing. Verse 6. Do not give dogs what is sacred. 
Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under feet and turn and tear you to pieces. What are we supposed to do with that? That, How is that tied to the first five verses? What does Jesus mean? Now, admittedly, this has been a hard thing for scholars to figure out, okay? Jesus is calling people, a certain category of people, he's calling them dogs. He's describing them as pigs. Now, scholars have pointed out that often in... uh, in that culture, dogs were, were wild scavengers, okay? And pigs were, were extremely unclean animals. Of course, the Jews were not to have anything to do with pigs at all, weren't supposed to touch them. They were ritually unclean. And the pearl in this story is agreed, uh, scholars agree that, that it's the kingdom of God. Because if you go to Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gives a whole bunch of parables about the kingdom of God. And he says that the kingdom of God is like a pearl of great price that a merchant found. He was looking for pearls of value. He found this one pearl that was of incredible value. And so he went and he sold everything he had and he bought that one pearl. That's the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is saying that the pearls are kingdom of God, is the kingdom of God. And, and the man in Matthew 13, he understood the value of that kingdom. Animals here in Matthew chapter 7, pigs and dogs, they don't understand the value. And so what Jesus is saying, scholars have said, that, that, that we cheapen the gospel, okay, when we allow dogs to bite it or, or we allow pigs to trample on it. There are people who reject the gospel so often and with such vehemence, with such like emotional rage almost it seems, like with, with vigor, like they hate it so much, they trample on it. Because you don't see the value of it, you, you trample on it. When you're pressed, you become hostile to it. So picture someone like like Richard Dawkins. That's kind of a famous illustrate, famous example of someone who can't stand the gospel. He hates it so much that he writes books against it. He goes on debates and, and tours of speaking engagements to prove to people how awful Christianity is. That's what, what Jesus is saying. Don't waste your time and energy on those people. That's possibly the... the, the, the the application here, but Dallas Willard, who's way smarter than all of us, he says, you know, in the Gospels, we have examples of dogs as pets, and it says don't throw your pearls before pigs. What would you be throwing to pigs? You'd be throwing food to pigs, so, so he's talking about something that is important to the Jews, they're pet dogs, and he's talking about something that's important to the Gentiles, they're pigs that they're raising. And, and what Dallas Willard says is, is that people are not understanding the gospel not just because they're super hostile to it, but it's because it's not what they want. The pig is expecting food. And instead, the pig gets pearls. And so it tries to eat the pearls, and its teeth break on them because that's not what a pearl is. And so they spit it out, but they look at you and they say, well, you're food, and they may trample those pearls to get to you. What he's saying is, there are non-Christians out there who when you share the gospel with them, it's not what they are looking for. So when you talk to them about eternal life, they kind of yawn 
Oh, yeah, eternal life. You talk about how Jesus came into the world and God punched a hole in the roof of the world and came down and he clothed himself in flesh and he lived as a human being so that he, he could know what it's like to be us. He suffered uh, the, the, uh, the humiliation of being like us and living like us and then he went to the cross and he, he actually suffered a, a substitutionary death for us on that cross where he was spit upon and he was mocked. He was stripped naked for all the world to laugh at him and make fun of him. You tell people about that stuff and they go, wow, that's, that's quite a story. You tell them that Jesus rose from the dead and so we don't have to fear death and hell and judgment and they go, meh. And the reason they do that, Dallas Willard says, is because they don't understand it. It doesn't compute to them because that's not what they're looking for. And so he says that what Jesus is saying here is you need to honor the pace of God's work in their lives. If you're going to take the speck out of someone else's eye, you know, you've got to be slow and gentle and careful about it. And Jesus says you need to give people the truth at a pace that they can handle it. He's saying pigs are not humans, so they don't see the value of pearls and they can't handle it. And he's saying a Christian is an, is, or a non-Christian is not a Christian, and so they don't get the value of salvation. You need to be patient with them. Look, there are people who come to this church. I'm not going to name names, and it's not like I know who they are, okay? But I do know this. There are folks coming to this church who hear me preach the gospel week after week and else. And they're sitting under a sermon and all of a sudden they're like, I have never heard that before. And the penny drops. And they are overwhelmed with guilt for their sin, but they see in Jesus who, someone who has paid the penalty for them and they are overwhelmed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. If, if you keep, we talked about this a few weeks ago, if you keep pressing, trying to shove those pearls down people's throats, they're going to gag on it potentially, right? This is like before. It is not a badge of honor. Like Jesus says, blessed are you if you are persecuted for my sake or for righteousness' sake. It is not a badge of honor to be persecuted for being a jerk. That is not something to be proud of. We can be proud of the fact that there are times when we are persecuted for our commitment to the gospel, but we are never to be satisfied that we are persecuted because we tick people off by our bad attitude or by our judgmentalism or our hypocrisy, okay? Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian and you've been listening, you might be offended because you're like, did he just say that Jesus calls me a pig? I just listened to a whole sermon about Christians being judgy, and I get to the end of the sermon, and the preacher guy starts slamming me with the most judgmental thing yet, calling me a pig. Yeah. Yes, that is what Jesus says, but he's not calling you a pig because you're dirty or you're less important. He calls you a pig because he says you're not understanding what I've come to do for you. You don't understand who I am and what I am about. And if you don't know much about Jesus, can I just 
tell you, he is the God-man. He is the second person of the Trinity, the God who existed before time even began. And he existed in fellowship with his Father where he was glorified and gave glory, where he was in a, a perfect union of love that you and I could never even comprehend. And he came into this world. He left all that behind, all the glory, all the accolades, all the cheering that he received from from a multitude of angels crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, Almighty. He left all of that. He set all of that aside and he climbed into this wretched, dirty, messed up, screwed up world that we have ruined by our sinfulness And yes, he came to teach us and to show us the way of God, absolutely. But ultimately, he came, he did this, he came into this world to die for you. And if you see him as the pearl for what he really is, that he came to die for you. Psalm 22, Jesus quotes Psalm 22 from the cross. The very first words of Psalm 22 are, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And further down in Psalm 22, it says this, many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. Jesus was cast to us, pigs and dogs, and we tore him to pieces. But he did that willingly because he loves you unconditionally so that we could be changed, so that we could be like the prince and the frog, the frog who gets, gets kissed and is transformed into a prince. That's what he came to do, to turn us beautiful through faith. Yes, it is a hard teaching of Jesus to call us pigs and dogs when we don't trust in him, but it is all meant Look, I might not be doing a good job of it, and for that I apologize. But Jesus literally lived what he preached in verses. He came into this world and he so gently wooed us and showed us the logs and specks in our eyes. How did he do that? By dying for them by paying for them, by saying, if you would put your trust in me, I will remove it with the most gentlest of hands. Come to me, he says, all you who are weary and are burdened, and I will give you rest. That's the one who calls you these horrible things. Come to him. Come to him today. Come to me after the end of the service and... and And let's talk more. Talk to Mark. Talk to Jessica. Let's pray. Father.